Hello everyone, welcome back to the Japan Archives episode number the next one. I can't remember right now. <laughs> um, how are you doing today, Heather? I am doing really good. We've got、uh, napping in the background and got to go out a little bit today, which was really nice. Nice little short trip, and I drove again for the first time in almost two months <laughs> because.、Oh. I didn't drive when I was pregnant the last month just because it was really difficult with my stomach. And then the past, you know, with her, I, in Japan, they want you to stay home for the first month. So you're not really supposed to go out in public and the baby's supposed to stay home. And it's supposed to be a time for you and the baby to rest and to bond and to, for mom to get her strength back and for baby to, you know, grow and drink lots of milk and you to figure out what. Their pattern is. So I followed a little bit of the Japanese tradition of, of staying home, except for the couple of times I had to go to the baby store to get something really quick, but we won't tell. Shh, we won't tell that. But <laughs> your, your secret is safe with me, and no doubt with our listeners, it's fine. Which is not the same in America or the UK. I think once you go home, they're just like, yeah, have fun. But yeah, in Japan, oh, the tradition, oh, this is a, for the bonus. I'm sure I'll mention it again too. But The midwife I talked to, she said that traditionally in Japan, you weren't supposed to leave the house really until your baby could hold their neck up by themselves, which is around three months. But she said, well, it's been changed to just one month now. So it's like, oh, thank God. If I had to stay home for three months, I might go nuts. I would go nuts. I think most people would now. <laughs> yeah, just go stir crazy from being at home. I mean, we've already been at home a lot. True. But like not going outside. Yeah, that sounds horrible. Yeah, because I mean, I think with the quarantine, we've, we've been able to kind of get go outside and get fresh air. So while it's not fun to stay cooped up inside all the time, but we could at least get out a little. But how are you? I'm doing pretty good.、Uh, I will be getting my first injection next Saturday. <gasps> are you kidding? So, a lot of places here, obviously, if you get your, your ticket through the mail, you can apply.、Um, but the waitlist is, can be super long. So, a lot of companies and a lot of universities for their students are saying, if you want your vaccination, let us know. And they're setting up their own small、mm. little centers. So, our work is doing it. And、oh. so they are getting me my first injection next Saturday. Which is、oh, good. And that then is insane. You just go back the month after and get the second one. That is awesome. You are so lucky, too. I heard about that program the, for the companies and universities, but they had to stop it because so many companies requested to get the vaccines that they couldn't fulfill everyone. So they stopped taking requests. So you are so, oh, so lucky to go ahead and be getting that. We just got our tickets in the mail. But our prefecture said, or our city said,、um, so we have the tickets, but we don't know when you're going to be able to get it. So we currently have tickets in our possession, but we can't book anything for a while. We have tickets that are it's pointless at this point, they serve no purpose. When they actually figure out how to get the vaccines to us, we at least have the tickets and won't have to wait for them. So, true, not entirely pointless, but not a very big point. You know, it'll be convenient once we actually can. Yeah. 
I'm so glad you're getting yours though, because it being in Tokyo and having to take public transportation, that's, yeah, I'm so glad for you to be getting that. Oh. What are we doing today, Heather? Oh my goodness. Today, we are going to be doing something a wee bit different. And we are going to be reading a folktale. This is true. We, this is happening. We, we talked last week about folktales and trying to do more stuff, but hey, you know what? We are flexible. We're going to be reading the story of Urashima Taro, which is a classic Japanese fairy tale. I guess folktale, fairy tale, both of those work interchangeably. But we're also going to be doing it in a little different style as opposed to one person reading. We're going to be kind of taking turns and then having discussion at the end. So we're changing the format up a little bit for the folktale. And yeah, we, we decided to also choose it today just to round off the turtles that we've been talking about lately, kind of bring it all to a conclusion, at least for now. Because I know we mentioned the tale in the episode, didn't you? Yes, yes, I did. Yes. So I think it makes sense to do it now while it's still fresh in our minds. Uh, so if you're ready, Heather, with your digital version of the book, I'm ready to jump in. Long, long ago in the province of Tango, there lived on the shore of Japan in the little fishing village of Mizunoye, a young fisherman named Ureshima Taro. His father had been a fisherman before him, and his skill had more than doubly descended to his son, for Ureshima was the most skillful fisher in all that countryside, and could catch more bonito and tie in a day than his comrades could in a week. But in the little fishing village, more than for being a clever fisher of the sea, was he known for his kind heart. In his whole life he had never heard anything, either great or small, and when a boy, his companions had always laughed at him, for he would never join with them in teasing animals, but always tried to keep them from this cruel sport. One soft summer twilight he was going home at the end of the day's fishing, when he came upon a group of children. They were all screaming and talking at the top of their voices, and seemed to be in a great state of excitement about something. And on his going up to them to see what was the matter, he saw that they were tormenting a tortoise. First one boy pulled it this way, then another boy pulled it that way, while a third child beat it with a stick, and the fourth hammered its shell with a stone. Now Urashima felt sorry for the poor tortoise, and made up his mind to rescue it, he spoke to the boys. Look here, boys, you are treating that poor tortoise so badly that it will die soon. The boys, who were all of an age when children seemed to delight in being cruel to animals, took no notice of Urashima's gentle reproof, but went on teasing it as before. One of the older boys answered, Who cares whether it lives or dies? We do not. Here, boys, go on, go on. And they began to treat the poor tortoise more cruelly than ever. Urashima waiting a moment, turning over in his mind what would be the best way to deal with the boys. He would try to persuade them to give the tortoise up to him, so he smiled at them and said, I am sure you are all good, kind boys. Now won't you give me the tortoise? I should like to have it so much. No, we won't give it to you, said one of the boys. Why should we? We caught it ourselves. What do you say is true, said Urashima. But I do not ask you to give it to me for nothing. I will give you some money. In other words, the Oji-san will buy it off you. Won't that do for you, my boys? 
He held up the money to them, strung on a piece of string through a hole in the center of each coin. Look, boys, you can buy anything you like with this money. You can do much more with this money than you can do without poor tortoise. See what good boys you are to listen to me. The boys were not bad boys at all. They were only mischievous. And as Urashima spoke, they were won by his kind smile and gentle words and began to be of his spirit, as they say in Japan. Gradually, they all came up to him, the ringleader of the little band holding out the tortoise to him. Very well, Oji-san. We will give you the tortoise if you will give us the money. And Urashima took the tortoise and gave the money to the boys, who, calling to each other, scampered away and were soon out of sight. Then Urashima stroked the tortoise's back, saying as he did so, Oh, you poor thing. There, there. You're safe now. They say that the stork lives for a thousand years, but the tortoise for ten thousand. You have the longest life of any creature in this world, and you were in great danger of having that precious life cut short by those cruel boys. Luckily, I was passing by and saved you, and so this life is still yours. Now I am going to take you back to your home, the sea at once. Do not let yourself be caught again, for there might be no one to save you next time. All the time that the kind fisherman was speaking, he was walking quickly to the shore and upon the rock, then putting the tortoise into the water, he watched the animal disappear and turned homewards himself, for he was tired and the sun had set. The next morning, Urashima went out as usual in his boat. The weather was fine and the sea and sky were both blue and soft in the tender haze of the summer morning. Urashima got into his boat and dreamily pushed out to sea throwing his line as he did so. He soon passed the other fishing boats and left behind him until they were lost to sight in the distance and his boat drifted further and further out upon the blue waters. Somehow, he knew not why, he felt unusually happy that morning and he could not help wishing that, like the tortoise he set free the day before, he had thousands of years to live instead of his own short span of human life. He was suddenly startled from his reverie by hearing his own name called, Urashima, Urashima. Clear as a bell and soft as the summer wind, the name floated over the sea. He stood up and looked in every direction, thinking that one of the other boats had overtaken him, but gaze as he might over the wide expanse of water, near or far, there was no sign of a boat, so the voice could not have come from any human being. Startled and wondering who or what it was that had called to him so clearly, he looked in all directions round about him and saw that without his knowing it, a tortoise had come to the side of the boat. Urashima saw with surprise that it was the very tortoise he had rescued the day before. Well, Mr. Tortoise, said Urashima, was it you who called out my name just now? The tortoise nodded its head several times and said, yes, it was I. Yesterday, in your honorable shadow, my life was saved, and I have come to offer you my thanks, and to tell you how grateful I am for your kindness to me. Indeed, said Urashima, that is very polite of you. Come up into the boat. I would offer you a smoke, but as you are a tortoise, doubtless you do not smoke. And the fisherman laughed at the joke. He, 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 laughed the tortoise. Sake is my favorite refreshment, but I do not care for tobacco. Indeed, said Urashima, I regret very much that I have no sake in my boat to offer you, but come up and dry your back in the sun, 
Tortoises always love to do that. So the tortoise climbed into the boat, the fisherman helping him, and after an exchange of complimentary speeches, the tortoise said, Have you ever seen Rinjin, the palace of the dragon king of the sea, Urashima? The fisherman shook his head and replied, No, year after year the sea has been my home, but though I have often heard of the dragon king's realm under the sea, I have never yet set eyes on the wonderful place. It must be very far away, if it exists at all. Is that really so? You have never seen the Sea King's Palace? Then you have missed seeing one of the most beautiful sights in the whole universe. It is far away at the bottom of the ocean, but if I take you there, we shall soon reach the place. If you would like to see the King, the Sea King's land, I will guide you. I should like to go there, certainly, and you are very kind to think of taking me. But you must remember that I am only a poor mortal and have not the power of swimming like a sea creature such as you. Before the fisherman could say more, the tortoise stopped him. What? You need not swim yourself. If you will ride on my back, I will take you without any trouble on your part. But, said Urashima, how is it possible for me to ride on your small back? It may seem absurd to you, but I assure you that I can do so. Try it once. Just come and get on my back and see if it is a, if it is as impossible as you think. As the tortoise finished speaking, Urashima looked at its shell, and strange to say, he saw that the creature had suddenly grown so big that a man could easily sit on its back. This is indeed strange, said Urashima. Then, Mr. Tortoise, with your kind permission, I will get on your back. The tortoise, with an unmoved face, as if this strange proceeding were quite an ordinary event, said, Now we will set out at our leisure. And with these words he leapt into the sea with Urashima on his back. Down through the water the tortoise dived. For a long time these two strange companions rode through the sea. Urashima never grew tired, nor his clothes moist with the water. At last, far away in the distance, a magnificent gate appeared, and behind the gate, the long, sloping roofs of a palace on the horizon. Oh, exclaimed Urashima, that looks like the gate of some large palace just now. Mr. Tortoise, can you tell what that place is we can now see? That is the great gate of the Rinjin Palace. The large roof that you see behind the gate is the Sea King's Palace itself. Then we have at last come to the realm of the Sea King, and to his palace, said Urashima. Yes, indeed, answered the tortoise, and don't you think we have come very quickly? And while he was speaking, the tortoise reached the side of the gate, and here we are, and you must please walk from here. The tortoise now went in front, and speaking to the gatekeeper, said, This is Urashima Taro, from the country of Japan. I have had the honour of bringing him as a visitor to this kingdom. Please show him the way. Then the gatekeeper, who was a fish, at once led the way through the gate before them. The red bream, the flounder, the sole, the cuttlefish, and all the chief vassals of the dragon king of the sea now came out with courtly bows to welcome the stranger. Urashima-sama, Urashima-sama, said the sea palace, the home of the dragon king of the sea. Thrice welcome are you, having come from such a distant country. And you, Mr. Tortoise, we are greatly indebted to you for all your trouble in bringing him here. 
Then, turning to Urashima, they said, Please follow us this way. And from here, the whole band of fishers became his guides. Urashima, being only a poor fisher lad, did not know how to behave in a palace. But strange though it all was to him, he didn't feel ashamed or embarrassed, but followed his kind guides quite calmly where they led to the inner palace. When he reached the portals, a beautiful princess, with her attendant maidens, came out to welcome him. She was more beautiful than any human being, and was robed in flowing garments of red and soft green like the underside of a wave, and golden threads glimmered through the folds of her gown. Her lovely black hair streamed over her shoulders in the fashion of a king's daughter many hundreds of years ago, and when she spoke, her voice sounded like music over the water. Urashima was lost in wonder while he looked upon her, and he could not speak. Then he remembered that he should bow, but before he could make a low bow to the princess, she took him by the hand and led him to a beautiful hall and to the seat of honor at the upper end, and bade him to be seated. Urashima Taro, it gives me the highest pleasure to welcome you to my father's kingdom, said the princess. Yesterday you set free a tortoise, and I have sent for you to thank you for saving my life, for I was that tortoise. Now you shall live here forever in the land of eternal youth, where summer never dies, and where sorrow never comes, and I will be your bride if you will and we will live together happily forever afterwards. And as Urashima listened to her sweet words and gazed upon her lovely face, his heart was filled with a great wonder and joy, and he answered her, wondering if it was all just a dream. Thank you a thousand times for your kind speech. There is nothing I could wish for more than to be permitted to stay here with you in this beautiful land, of which I have often heard, but never seen to this day. Beyond all words, this is the most wonderful place I have ever seen. While he was speaking, a train of fishes appeared, all dressed in ceremonial trailing garments. One by one, silently and with stately steps, they entered the hall, bearing on coral trays delicacy of fish and seaweed, such as no one can dream of. And this wondrous feast was set before the bride and bridegroom. The bride was celebrated with dazzling splendor, and in the Sea King's realm there was great rejoicing. As soon as the young pair had pledged themselves in the wedding cup of wine three times three, music was played, and songs were sung, and fishes with silver scales and golden tails stepped in from the waves and danced. Urashima enjoyed himself with all his heart. Never in his whole life had he sat down to such a marvelous feast. When the feast was over, the princess asked the bridegroom if he would like to walk through the palace and see all there was to be seen. Then the happy fisherman, following his bride, the sea king's daughter, was shown all the wonders of that enchanted land where youth and joy go hand in hand and neither time nor age can touch them. The palace was built of coral and adorned with pearls, and the beauties and wonders of the place were so great that the tongue fails to describe them. But to Urashima, more wonderful than the palace was the garden that surrounded it. Here was to be seen at one time the scenery of the four different seasons. The beauties of summer and winter, spring and autumn, were displayed to the wondering visitor at once. First, when he looked to the east, 
The plum and the cherry trees were in full bloom. The nightingales sang in pink avenues, and butterflies flitted from flower to flower. Looking to the south, all the trees were green in the fullness of summer, and the cicada and the night cricket chirped loudly. Looking to the west, the autumn maples were ablaze like the sunset sky, and the chrysanthemums were in perfection. Looking to the north, the change made Arashima start, for the ground was silver white with snow, and trees and bamboo were also covered with snow, and the pond was thick with ice. And each day there were new joys and new wonders for Arashima, and so great was his happiness that he forgot everything, even the home he had left behind, and his parents and his own country. And three days passed without his even thinking of all he had left behind. Then his mind came back to him, and he remembered who he was, and that he did not belong to this wonderful land or the Sea King's palace, and so he said to himself, I must not stay here, for I have an old father and mother at home. What can have happened to all of them? How anxious they must have been these days when I did not return as usual. I must go back at once without letting one more day pass. And he began to prepare for the journey in great haste. Then he went to his beautiful wife, and bowing low before her said, I have been very happy with you for a long time, Otohime-sama, and you have been kinder to me than any words can tell. But now I must say goodbye. I must go back to my old parents. Then Otohime-sama began to weep and said softly and sadly, Is it not well with you here, Urashima, that you wish to leave me so soon? Where is the haste? Stay with me yet another day only. But Urashima had remembered his old parents. And in Japan the duty to parents is stronger than everything else, stronger ever than pleasure or love, and he would not be persuaded, but answered, Indeed, I must go. Do not think that I wish to leave you. It is not that. I must go and see my old parents. Let me go for one day, and I will come back to you. Then, the princess said sorrowfully, there is nothing to be done. I will send you back today to your father and mother, and instead of trying to keep you with me one more day, I shall give you this as a token of our love. Please take it back with you. And she brought him a beautiful lacquer box, tied with a silken cord and tassels of red silk. Urashima had received so much from the princess already that he felt some compunction in taking the gift and said, it does not seem right for me to take yet another gift from you after all the many favours I have received at your hands, but because it is your wish I will do so. And then he added, Tell me what is in this box. That, answered the princess, is the tame tebako, or the box of the jewel hand, and it contains something very precious. You must not open this box, whatever happens. If you open it, something dreadful will happen to you. Now promise me that you will never open the box. And Urashimo promised that he never would. And then bidding goodbye to Otohime-sama, he went down to the seashores, and Princess and her attendants followed him. And there he found a large tortoise waiting for him. He quickly mounted the creature's back and was carried away over the shining sea into the east. He looked back to wave his hand to Otohime-sama, till at last he could see her no more, and the land of the Sea King and the roofs of the wonderful palace were lost in the far, far distance. Then, with his face turned eagerly towards his own land, 
he looked for the rising of the blue hills on the horizon before him. At last the tortoise carried him into the bay he knew so well, and to the shore from whence he had set out. He stepped onto the shore and looked about him, while the tortoise rode away back to the sea king's realm. But what is this strange fear that seizes Urashima as he stands and looks about him? Why does he gaze so fixedly at the people that pass him by? And why do they in turn stand and look at him? The shore was the same, and so were the hills. But the people that he sees walking past him have very different faces to those he had known so well before. Wondering what it can mean, he walks quickly towards his old home. Even that looks different, but a house stands on the spot, and so he called out. Father, I have just returned, and he was about to enter, when he saw a strange man coming out. Perhaps my parents have moved while I have been away and have gone somewhere else, was the fisherman's thought. Somehow he began to feel strangely anxious, he could not tell why. Excuse me, said he to the man who was staring at him, but till the last few days I have lived in this house, my name is Arashimataro. Where have my parents gone? A very bewildered expression came over the face of the man, and still, gazing intently on his face, said, What? Are you Arashimataro? Yes, said the fisherman, I am Arashimataro. Ha ha, laughed the man. You must not make such jokes. It is true that once upon a time a man called Arashimataro did live in this village, but that is a story three hundred years old. He could not possibly be alive now. When Arashima heard those strange words, he was frightened and said, Please, please, you, you must not joke with me, for I am greatly perplexed. I really am Arashimataro, and I have certainly not lived three hundred years. Till four or five days ago, I lived on this spot. Tell me what I want to know without more joking, please. But the man's face grew more and more grave, and he answered, You may or may not be Arashimataro, I don't know. But the Arashimataro of whom I have heard is a man who lived three hundred years ago. Perhaps you are his spirit, come to revisit your old home? Why do you mock me? said Arashima. I am no spirit, I am a living man. Do you not see my feet? He stomped on the ground, first with one foot and then the other to show the man. But, but, Arashimataro lived three hundred years ago. All, that's all I know. It's written in the village chronicles, persisted the man, who could not believe what the fisherman said. Arashima was lost in bewilderment and trouble. He stood looking all around him, terribly puzzled. And indeed, something in the appearance of everything was different to what he had remembered before he went away and the awful feeling came over him that what the man said was perhaps true. He seemed to be in a strange dream. The few days he had spent in the Sea King's palace beyond the sea had not been days at all. They had been hundreds of years, and in that time his parents had died, and all the people he had ever known, and the village had written down his story. There was no use in staying here any longer. He must get back to his beautiful wife beyond the sea. He made his way back to the beach, carrying in his hand the box which the princess had given him. But which was the way? He could not find it alone. Suddenly, he remembered the box, the tomate bako. The princess told me when she gave me the box never to open it, that it contained a very precious thing. 
but now I have no home. Now that I have lost everything that was dear to me here, and my heart grows thin with sadness, and at, at such a time, if I open the box, surely I shall find something that will help me, something that will show me the way back to my beautiful princess over the sea. There is nothing else for me to do now. Yes, yes, I will open the box and look in. And so his heart consented to this act of disobedience. And he tried to persuade himself that he was doing the right thing in breaking his promise. Slowly, very slowly, he untied the red silk cord. Slowly and wonderingly, he lifted the lid of the precious box. And what did he find? Strange to say, only a beautiful little purple cloud rose out of the box in three soft wisps. For in an instant it covered his face and wavered over him as if loath to go, and then it floated away like vapour over the sea. Urashima, who had been till that moment like a strong and handsome youth of twenty-four, suddenly became very, very old. His back doubled up with age, his hair turned snowy white, his face wrinkled and he fell down dead on the beach. Poor Urashima, because of his disobedience, he could never return to the Sea King's realm, or the lovely princess beyond the sea. Little children, never be disobedient to those who are wiser than you, for disobedience was the beginning of all the miseries and sorrows of life. And there we go. I find it, Do you think it's strange that if they have to put the moral of the story in at the end... Does it take away from the story? Like, isn't the whole point of this to interpret and find the moral yourself? This version is the only one I've seen that had a moral at the end. So... Really? Yeah. Or maybe the, she added it in her translation. That's what it, it feels like to me, because it we have so many different stories that have... Um, like the like children's stories that have the moral of the, moral of the story at the end. It feels like she put that moral in. I yeah, I don't know if it was translated or if it was put in. <laughs> but this version is also the only one I've heard that he dies at the end. Usually he just becomes old. But this one he actually falls down dead. So that that was a little surprising for me to have that in this version. Oh, I've never read a a version where he survives. So, I've only ever had seen this one. Uh, it makes sense, though, that he would die. Clearly, everything that in the box was, like, she stored away his life in the box to keep him alive. But why Why even gift it to him? As I was asking you at the same time, I was like, oh, we're both asking the same question. Yeah, why? I always feel like Japanese fairy tales, a lot like when Tessa read them initially, she said they were a bit... Like, pointless in a way. The story does... Aesop's fables and the morals they have, the story makes sense. It doesn't seem like a pointless story, whereas a lot of these, in the end, it's like a deus ex machina. It's like, we need something quickly to happen that relates to a moral. Hmm. Normally, like in Aesop's fable, the theme is there throughout, but then it was right at the end. It was like, here's a box, don't open it. Go home. I also had an idea. Of, oh no, go on. You were going to say something. Sorry. Oh no, no, I wasn't. I'll finish up this thought first. I was. I always wondered about the the gardens that were always in each season, like stuck in each season, mm. and then it kind of makes sense in my head in that 
in essence, time is happening so quickly in the palace, the gardens don't have time to change season, which is probably why they don't change. Oh. Like, it's constantly always reverting back to the same season, so the trees never change. Ooh. That's the thought I just had this time around. Oh, I like that. Mm. And I also wonder how the turtle was saying, oh, it doesn't take long to get there at all. I wonder if the time changed during the voyage there, which is why it didn't take that long. Oh, yeah. That's a, like, why would he even, the, the, why would the turtle mention that? Like, oh, it doesn't take long to get here. But at this, yeah, at that point, the sense of time had already changed. Because it's definitely very far away, because when they introduce Urashima, they specify the country he's from. Oh. And you would only need to do that if your palace was located in the middle of the ocean, away from lots of countries. Is this Atlantis? The, oh, the Japanese Atlantis. Mm, maybe. Hmm. Maybe. But also, also weird in that it feels like they were almost brainwashing him because he had to remember who he was ah, to go yeah. home. So she was grateful that he was, she was saved, so she was happy to marry him. But she didn't tell him any of the consequences of it. Like, you stay here for a day, a hundred years will pass. So they just brainwash him into remaining a faithful husband but then he got his memories back which is why he was so she was so sad about it or maybe they've just been there so long that they've forgotten about the time being different and like maybe she she knew putting his life essence i guess in that box would keep him mm. at his same age because they don't really have that perception of how much shorter time is i mean i'm trying to trying to be nice as opposed to that also makes sense what you said. <laughs> but Or like the complete opposite. They tend to forget that one day for them is a hundred years for everyone else. But then again, maybe maybe by him just even coming to the palace, fifty years had already passed, and at this point they're like, Ah, oh, yeah, we're not gonna tell you that because then he would have probably So one hour is about four years. Hmm. In the it, by that logic, if one day is a hundred years, one hour is about four years. I'll go with your math. I need my coffee. Well, <laughs> Twenty-five times four is a hundred, so like four and a bit years. I was trying to break down into hours and years at the same time. Like that's too much. So that's, that's what I mean. Much. She could have told him one hour in is saying time works differently here it's been four years do you want to go and say goodbye to your parents and then come back to me but instead she waited three three hundred years then she let him go still didn't tell him mm -mm. yeah here's a box don't open it but it's a gift for you but don't open it because if you do you'll die because time is gone a lot of time is gone and she was right in saying that it the box did hold something precious mm -hmm. the box held his life yeah but as well she she does say well at least in the translation she says i will send you back to your mother and father which she didn't do because they're not there oh 
Because I was thinking back, I was thinking maybe she said something like, I will send you back to the place your parents live. But she outright says here she's sending him back to his parents. So again, that raises your idea of does does she not, does she, do they forget in the palace that time works differently for them? Or did she just say what he wanted to hear and she just wanted him to discuss? I think because of the moral that's thrown in at the end, even if the moral itself wasn't explained, the the meaning, like the moral itself, the interpretation of the meaning is only there at the end. The whole don't open the boxing. The rest of there is a lot of, well, it's just a nice story up until that point. There is no moral. There's no build up to it. It's just thrown in at the end. Or maybe I'm being very cynical. I have to. I have something interesting to point out that mm. the moral is to not disobey, and technically, like d disobeying whom? Disobeying your wife. So because he disobeyed what his wife said, he died. Because like, dis where's the disobedience coming from? Because it's not a parent figure; it's his wife that's telling him, "Don't open this box." And I, I, I thought that was um, that just struck me. I think when you were talking mm. about the box and I was like, wait a minute, but disobedience to your wife? Oh, I like this interpretation. That's actually quite good. But then you look at the specific thing she wrote in the translation. She says, little children never be disobedient to those who are wiser than you. So in this context, he's only, he is a, they're calling him not a man, he's a child who doesn't know better because she's this ancient being and he's obviously so much younger than her in the grand scheme of things. So yeah, they're calling him a child as well in the story. Mm, that also makes it you a little, <laughs> a little, a lot actually. But no, I, I like what you thought of. That's really interesting. I would, I would pick that part out. Don't disobey your wife or bad things will happen. See what the professor says about that interpretation later. But is that a thing historically in Japan? Oh, no. 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 No, no, no really, no. Men were definitely the voices of authority. And usually we, most of the Japanese stories we've had have been, the wives have been nagging and cruel and mm. not... Not the best uh, in that interpretation. Um, what's the word to show somebody interpolation? Oh, God, what is that word, Thomas? When you, yeah, wives are not always given the best treatment in many of the stories we've read. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely true. I think this is one of the first ones where, well, no, to be fair, she was the turtle. Ah. So she ah. was. Ah, that's right. You, the turtle. Because turtles live for tens of thousands of years, and if she was a turtle, then ah. But also, she was the daughter of the Dragon King, so she can shapeshift into human, turtle, and dragon, I assume. Hmm. Well, dragons live a long time as well, don't they? I've never met one to ask. <laughs> oh, speaking of um, not bad interpretations, but bad... I'll think of the word eventually. Depictions. Depictions. That's a good one. Depictions of people. At the beginning of the story, I'm going to pull this one out. 
The boys, who were all of an age when children seemed to delight in being cruel to animals. That did strike me as a weird thing to say. Yeah. Like, so all children seem to delight in being... No, no. That's... No. No. <laughs> well, if that's true, then going back to our hell episode, that's probably like 10,000 years of hell for being a mischievous child. Oh, and everyone, yeah. everyone's doomed to do it by that logic. Like, it's a very general statement that mm. is very wrong. Yeah. I know. The children, if, if, if they delight in being cruel to animals, that's not a, that's a very bad sign. Or it means that they are too young to understand that they're hurting another creature. And that's when the parents should be stepping in saying, hey, don't hurt creatures who are more helpless than you. Or actually don't hurt any creatures regardless if they're more helpless than you or not. Just don't hurt, just don't hurt things. I mean, you're, you, you think about cause and effect, but you're not thinking about what the effect is doing to something else, to another, yeah. to another creature. And then mm -hmm. you realize that if you learn that and you realize that and then you are still cruel to animals that's really bad but if you oh I, if i do this this happens oh but if you this happens then you're hurting or you're killing another creature and that's bad then you should learn to not do it but that that's that sentence i went i don't know if you saw my face or not i think i made a I face did. i did actually i remember now that you brought it back up again i remember you like going huh? Yeah, because then they said, we don't care if it lives or dies, and we're going to just kill it, or we're just going to torture it. And so essentially, yeah, that's not all children. That is yeah. definitely not all children. That's just, but then it was, but the boys were not bad boys at all, just mischievous. No, that's crossed the line of mischievous into abusive territory. <laughs> it sounds like what boys, boys will be boys kind of thing that. I hate that mantra. Oh, boys will be like, mm. Agreed. That's no, just that's just yeah. I'm glad you said it first. Though. Oh, and the other one. There's another sentence that made me start. I think I made a face that you might have seen it. Where is it? It's the. I think I was reading it at the time, and I made the mm. face. Was the the fish coming in on stately steps? Train of fishes coming in on stately steps. Yeah, I saw, I saw her again your face during that. Be like, and then they brought in trays of fish. So the fish walking in with trays of fish. I guess. Well, they did list. They they specified specific fish that worked for the Dragon King. So I suppose if you weren't that type of fish, you were, you weren't of a high enough status in the fish hierarchy either that or you went in for your job interview and if you didn't pass the job interview you became dinner what a horrible thought those poor fish i know mm, so this are yeah maybe your hierarchy system is also not great but much better than the other system yeah this one this one is some of this stuff i i feel like it's historical and in interpretation because this this one's over a over 100 years old um it is recorded in various literature dating to the 8th century. It's even mentioned in the Manyoshu. Oh, really? And the Nihongi. Oh, this story? Mm-hmm. Ooh. But this interpretation was 
when was this one done? I um so Ye Theodora Ozaki translated these tales in 1908. Yeah, that's over a hundred so years. Very, ago. very, very modern in the grand scheme of things. But not modern in ideals. The the tale familiar to most Japanese was authored during the Meiji period and is a condensed version. That is probably the one I'm I'm more familiar with. This is a, this is a long version. This is much longer than the ones I'm used to. There's even a school song version, apparently. Ooh. I've just found. I feel like we need to use that for an episode. So how how what is your feeling about this story? Um I like it until the end. It seems like a pointless addition. I don't see why he had to die. She could have then come to the beach to meet him and be like, I'm sorry, I didn't have the heart to tell you because you were so happy in the palace, blah, blah, blah. Let's go home and be happy together. And then, like, they go back. Like, there could have been a different moral to do with time and memory, perhaps. Because that's a, a, the book seems centers more around time than mm. disobedience. So there could have been a different moral, I feel. Hmm. That's me anyway. What about you? I go with you. I I enjoy the story until the, the last little bit and then it has that Pandora's box feeling where it does it comes out of nowhere. Yeah, the Pandora's box it's And we have we have our our, our hero who does a good deed, but then at the end he open something that he was told specifically don't ever open this because this is precious you can't open it just don't open it and then he opens it so we have a almost like a flawed not a flawed hero but when we think of hero we think of someone who always does the right thing and he ends up doing the wrong thing at the end well it almost seems out of character because he's hmm. so nice and caring and intelligent it seems odd that he would then do it granted in the story he says Oh, she said it contains something precious. Maybe it will help me. But she did also say the precious thing is terrible and will hurt you. So don't open it. But also maybe she had, now that I think about it, maybe he, she had to give it to him. Maybe he had, it always had to be near him because oh. it was his life. So maybe he'd have also died if she didn't give it to him because they would have been separated. That could be an interpretation about why she had to give it to him and why she said, don't open it. Hmm. But she also could have said, I'll wait for you on the beach when you visited your parents. Yeah, why didn't... he goes to the beach and he's like, I don't know how to get back. But he said to her he would go back. Ah. Ah. She, would, she wouldn't have been on the beach because he said he would return in one day. One day for her is a hundred years. So she wouldn't have returned to the beach for a hundred years, which is why she wasn't there. Oh, hello there. Hello there, Logic. <laughs> yeah, he should have, he, if he had, yeah, he, there was no good exit strategy. I was wondering why they didn't set up something or why somebody didn't wait for him there at the beach or, yeah, that is a very good point. She's like, oh yeah, I'll wait for you a day. So perhaps she really did not think about the time difference then because she would have yeah that, that that puts in support of her 
just not being ignorant as opposed to being malevolent. Yeah, it would explain why she didn't mention they were dead, why she didn't seem to think anything of the time, because she, if she'd have realized, she'd have probably said, oh, you'll be dead in a day? Do you mean one day for you or one day for me? Because if you mean one day for you, I'll see you in four hours. <laughs> Oh, so then that does make more sense because if he said at the end of the day and then the day ends and nothing happens and he's like, all I've got is this box. I have nothing else. She said, don't open it, but what am I supposed to do? Because, But also, the box was holding his life. Would he have been able to wait a hundred years for her if he hadn't have opened the box? I think yes, because he was still a young man of around 24. So he would have probably... Like, it. Maybe it was that box was holding his life in stasis. So he would just be so hanging he out. he could have waited if yeah. he'd have been patient enough. And he wouldn't have aged. But then can you imagine just a hundred years of being the same age and people would think you are definitely a ghost or a spirit or something creepy. You'd have to constantly be moving so that people wouldn't know that you were in stasis no, you could you could set yourself up as this amazing wizard or something that lives in the woods people come to you for like knowledge and wisdom yeah but he's only got the knowledge and wisdom of like 300 years ago <laughs> you have to buy some books quickly and start studying <laughs> well I, I enjoyed that we actually thought of a lot of ideas there i wasn't sure about this one because i've read it a few times and i nothing really occurred to me but i think it's because i heard someone else reading it to me that i then just sat and listened and thought about what i was listening to so we we when we have another story we should probably try mm. this again because yeah because we had a, a nice little that's a back and forth going on there that's cool yeah it worked well solved a lot today for that story hooray go us go us Thank you, little baby. You did so well today. Nice and quiet. A few gurgles in the background, but... Today was um, the professor's afternoon to be point person, except for, for feeding, which he cannot do. So he is uh, has his bonding time and uh, hangout time, I guess I should say. Hangout time with uh, our little friend, so... But she did good. I'm so proud. I think it's time to say goodbye, no, for today. Yep. Oh, yeah, today, no poem. No. Because we both worked on this episode. Yay. Um, But we can make up for it. Maybe we can do two next week Ooh. to make it up to everyone. We'll see how that goes. But thank you, everyone, for tuning in this week to episode number I Still Don't Remember. Um, We hope you enjoyed the episode today. 65. The last one we did was Hell. 65. Episode 65. We get there in the end. Only took us, what, an hour-ish? 65. Yay, episode 65. So thank you, everyone, for tuning in today. We hope you enjoyed the story, and we hope you enjoyed our having a little discussion about it afterwards. If you have your own thoughts or opinions on it, let us know. Messages over on Instagram or on our twitter or contact us through the website historyofjapan.co.uk but that's everything from me how about you heather i think that's all for me all right well we will speak to you all next week guys 
またね。皆さん気をつけてまたね。